Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Kortz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Continue through the series, Unexpected. We're making our way through the Old Testament book of Micah, and we're looking together at who God is and why who God is is for us so unexpected and why that is ultimately a great gift. I want to invite you to continue with me on that journey today by taking your Bibles and turning with me to Micah chapter 2. Micah chapter 2, found on page 776 in the Worship Bibles. If you're in the Sherwood Forest campus, they're located right in the entrance to the uh, Worship Center. If you are in the Clements campus, they're underneath your chair. If you're in the uh, uh, stadium seating, they're underneath the chair in front of you elsewhere, unless you're on the first row, unless you're on the first row. They're underneath you there as well. Micah chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 will be our focus for today. What we've seen already as we come to this passage is that Micah chapter 1 presents to us the God who can be lost, the God who can be found, and the God who can be restored. And what we've learned thus far is this. First of all, that God gets lost to us when we neglect Him and reject Him as the God that He is and try to replace Him with a God that we want Him to be. That is how God gets lost. We've also seen together that the lost God is found when, on His own initiative, He finds us as we are and is restored to us when we receive His offer of Himself, key phrase, as He is, as He is. Now, in our passage for this weekend, in Micah chapter 2, what we find is that God, through the prophet Micah, continues to address the sins of his people and continues to address the problem of a religion that supports or reinforces their sin, saying that how they're living is acceptable to God. Specifically, this passage, Micah chapter 2, addresses how and why the true God deals with sin even when that sin is done by people who say they love him and who know he loves them. Micah chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, Micah opens this passage and he says, Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away. They oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance, his land. Therefore, says the Lord, behold, against this family of wrongdoers, I'm devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks and you shall not walk haughtily for it will be for you a time of disaster in that day. They shall take up a taunt against you, and you will moan bitterly and say, We are utterly ruined. He changes the portion of my people or my family, how he removes it from me to an apostate, to, to a stranger. He allots our fields. Therefore, you will have none to cast the line by lot in the assembly of the Lord. 
false prophets next respond to Micah's preaching and Micah's message. They say to him, verse 6, Don't preach, thus they preach. One shouldn't preach such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. And then they turn to Micah's hearers, to the congregation, and they say, Should this be said, O house of Jacob? Has the Lord really grown impatient? Are these his deeds? Is this the way God really acts? The Lord responds to them through Micah and says with a question of his own, Don't my words do good to him who walks uprightly? But lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You strip the rich robe from those who pass by trustingly with no thought of war, of conflict. The women of my people you drive out from their delightful houses, from their young children. You take away my splendor forever. So you, you arise and go. Go. This is no place to rest for you any longer because of uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. If a man should go about and utter lies, God now turns his attention to these false prophets, saying, I will preach to you of wine and strong drink. You, or he would be the preacher for this people. You are the kinds of preachers that this people enjoys. Micah chapter 2. Yesterday I was uh, all alone. I'd had a rough week this past week. It was just from stem to stern, it was a rough week, and I was looking forward to Saturday and uh, just being able to park on my back porch and stare at the trees, which is sometimes good therapy. Just stare at the trees, no noise, no nothing. Cheryl had a meeting, so I was all by myself. And uh, so there I was, and I spent some time with the Lord, spent some time in Psalm 25. It was really a, a great start to the morning. I finished my first cup of coffee and decided I needed a second cup of coffee. And so I, I got up and made my way to the kitchen, and I was minding my own business when I noticed that the lazy Susan door was open. And um, I thought, well, I will close it as I pass by on to the Keurig to get another cup of coffee. It sounded like a reasonable plan, but as I reached down to shut the Lazy Susan door, my eye fell on a can of Allen's Kentucky Wonder green beans. And I got to thinking to myself how good those Kentucky Wonders would be with a little bacon in there, either as a snack or as lunch. All of a sudden, I found myself putting down my cup of empty cup of coffee, and suddenly a pan appeared on the stove, and the heat was turned on high, and I was opening up that can of green beans and, and getting them going. And then, of course, I needed to find bacon for those because that's what you have with Kentucky Wonders. You always have hardwood smoked bacon. That's what you do. And so I looked in the refrigerator. There was none to be found. And I thought, well, there must be some in the freezer. And I opened up the freezer drawer and I started to dig down into the freezer. And all of a sudden, there appeared before my eyes that southern specialty of Crowder peas. And I thought to myself, wouldn't Crowder peas be delicious with green beans and bacon. I mean, wouldn't that? And all of a sudden, there was a second pot on the stove, turned on high, and Crowder peas now resting. 
I went back to look for the bacon and I was digging through and lo and behold, it was a glorious day. There appeared a third item, another southern specialty, butter beans. And I thought to myself, well, what is better than butter beans with Crowder peas and Kentucky Wonders with a little bacon in it? So out came a third pot and I turned that thing on, poured that in there and Oh my, the smells were really good. I went back to the freezer looking for the bacon and I found corn. And so a fourth pot came out and I filled that up and I was adding butter to the corn because you know, corn is always good with butter. In fact, everything's good with butter. And it's good with bacon too, if you can find it. I went back to the freezer Another time and was rummaging through and lo and behold, there was a whole package of pork chops. And I got those out and I opened them up and I seasoned them up and I let them begin to thaw. And I went back again. I found some ham and I put that in the green beans. And I thought, I'll look one more time. There has got to be some hardwood smoked bacon. There just has to be. And sure enough, at the very bottom, there it was, hardwood smoked bacon. Having already put ham in my green beans, I put the bacon in the crowd of peas. <laughs> Cheryl came back about 11, an hour before lunch, and supper was already made. <laughs> she said, what happened? I said, I don't know. I was just going to get a cup of coffee. <laughs> it was so good. I'm about ready to quit and just go home and finish it off. Huh? Now, what does that tell you about me? Well, it tells you some things about me. It tells you about my nature, and it tells you a little bit about my character. If you think about it a little bit, if you want to know why a person does what they do and how they do it, you need to know about their nature and you need to know about their character. The nature is who you are as a being. I am a human being, which means that part of me means that I have to eat in order to live. I eat to live. But part of my character, my attitudes, my convictions, my, uh, uh, that lead to my behavior, uh, my character is distinct from my nature. And in this case, what this shows you about my character is that I have a particular attitude toward food that says not only do I live to eat, but I, no, not only do I eat to live, but I live to eat. That eating is for me. More than just survival, it is joy. But it also tells you that I have certain convictions that uh, southern food should always be eaten every chance you get. If there are crowd of peas and Kentucky wonders, hmm. Butter beans and pork chops, they must be, they should be, they will be eaten. That's a conviction. 
And that conviction there drives my behavior. If you want to know why people do what they do, if you want to know why you do what you do, you've got to understand your nature as a human being, and you've got to understand your own character. What are those attitudes? What are those convictions that drive your behaviors? Those form together your character. If you want to know why God does what God does, because he too is a person, he is spirit, but he is a person, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You, you've got to understand his nature, and you've got to also understand his character. Now, Moses understood this, and Moses knew this, and God knew this as well. And so he introduces himself, as we've seen, to Moses as the great I am. That is his nature. I, I am the kind of being that has no beginning, no end. I never change. I can't be changed. I'm all-powerful. Uh, there has never been a time when I haven't been. There is never going to be a time when I won't be. That is who I am. I am the great I am. Moses, uh, understanding that and appreciating that, came to the Lord one day and he said to him, show me your glory, which is another way of saying, tell me what you're like. Tell me who you are. Tell me about your character. And God said, okay, I will. I will. And, and so he passed by Moses. He said, go up onto this mountain. I will meet you. And then I'm going to tell you about my character. And this is what God said to him. God came and said, the Lord, the Lord, a God, the I am, the I am, a God who is merciful and gracious. You want to know who I am, what my attitudes are, what my convictions are? I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. You want to know who I am? You want to know my character? Here's my character. Count on it. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, forgiving transgression, iniquity, transgression, and sin. Then he continues, but, he says, I am the God who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Now, that's curious. That, that's very curious. What? He says he's, he keeps in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but he will not clear the guilty. Now, how in the world does that work? Which is something Moses must have wondered. Something that Micah must have wondered as well. What does God's love mean? Comes this, this question. What does God's love mean for our life choices, especially for our sins? What does God's love mean for our life choices, especially for our sins? How is it that he, he is this God with this character? The, the qualities there seem to be at odds with one another. That is the question that Micah chapter 2 begins to answer for us by showing us three unexpected life consequences of God's character. I want us to look at those today. I want us to see together the unexpected life consequence of God's love then the unexpected life consequence of God's justice, 
And finally, the unexpected life consequence of God's faithfulness. The unexpected life consequence of God's love, then his justice, then his faithfulness. Let's begin together looking at the unexpected life consequence of God's love. Now, I'm going to warn you before we read this passage again, you'll be looking for love, but you'll probably be looking for it in all the wrong places. But here we go. Here we go. All right. Verses 1 and 2, 1 and 2, the unexpected life consequences of God's love. Whoa, Micah says, Micah speaking, whoa, and it's an expression of grief, of regret, of distress from what he has seen, from what God has shown him is coming. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their beds, those who make evil choices. When the morning dawns, they perform it because it is in the power of their hands. What do they do? Well, verse 2, they covet fields and they seize those fields. They covet houses and they seize those houses and they take them away. Notice again at the end of verse 1, because they can. Not because they should, but because they can. They oppress a man in his house, a man in his inheritance, that is his property. So after making the general charge in in Micah chapter 1 against Judah and Samaria of uh, the people's sin and wickedness, in Micah chapter 2, God through Micah gets focused on a specific group of sins and a specific group of people because he wants to make a specific point. And those specific sins we see here are the sins of wealthy, powerful people, and this is that specific group that he's targeting, who are planning out of sheer covetousness, planning ways that they can take what is not theirs and do it in ways that are are apparently legal. So these wealthy individuals planning at night how they might get another piece of land and another house here and there, plan all evening, go to the courts early in the morning, and because they were powerful, because they were wealthy, because they were connected, more times than not succeeded in taking something that wasn't theirs. Now, it's important for us to recognize that in Micah's day, Judah was basically an agricultural uh, nation, and that people depended upon having a, a, a field along with their home in order to survive. They had to plant, raise their own crops so that they could make it. That was the way they lived. God's original plan had been to give every family some property, every clan property, and then every individual family property so that they could actually live and sustain their lives. What, what, what happened over time was that there would be seasons when there would be famine or drought Uh, famine because of drought and and the crops wouldn't grow and those who lived depending upon agriculture would find that that they 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 began to fail financially and they began to fail in terms of being able to provide food for their families the rich stepped in and often would loan them money on the basis of uh, a cloak which was what a poor man might have would be his most valuable thing aside from his home and his property Sometimes they would offer to, to take a man himself. He would sell himself into servitude and serve for a period of years in order to get money to provide for his family. But what was happening in Micah's day was the, when, when, when those kind of events would come, the wealthy were so covetous that they weren't, even, they weren't willing to stop with taking a man into servitude. 
They would take the man into servitude. Then they would find a way to get his house and his property, kicking effectively his wife and his children out of their home with no place to go. It was an incredible time of injustice. Your father enslaved you no home and nowhere to turn because the courts had ruled on the side of the wealthy and the privileged. And this is what Micah is speaking to here. This is what he's addressing here. Now, you might look at that and say, all right, I don't see, I don't see God's love here. I, I, see, I see a lot of uh, something else. I see a lot of evil. I see a lot of wickedness. But go back and look at that passage again. This is Micah speaking on behalf of God. And what is unexpected here that we need to see right away is God's concern for the orphan, for the widow, for the poor, for the oppressed. In Micah's day, that was unexpected because here, this was the thinking. If a man or a woman or a family had a lot of wealth, that was proof positive that God had blessed them and they must have been obedient in some way. That if you were obedient, God would bless you. And one of the surest ways you could know God was blessing you was that you had a lot of resources. And so that, that was the mindset in the day. And, and it was pretty widely shared. I'm poor. I must have done something wrong. You're rich. You must be doing something right. God is on your side. God is against me. So when Micah speaks on God's behalf and God is actually concerned for the widow, for the poor, for the struggling, for the oppressed, it's shocking because they don't have any proof of God's blessing. And yet God is still concerned for them. So what is that saying? It's saying something that you and I probably take for granted, and that is that God loves them. In fact, God loves all people. He loves the oppressors, yes, but he also loves the oppressed. And that's a powerful, powerful statement, and one that was hard for them to hear. He loves all. Now, you and I, were used to this in our culture. We're told this all the time. Every third church with a sign is going to tell you God loves you. God is love. I mean, it's, it's everywhere. But, but, but what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it means four things. To say that God is love, to say that God loves me, to say that God loves you, to say that God loves all people means, first of all, that God is benevolent. That is to say that he unselfishly, as a matter of his character, he unselfishly seeks not his own good in his dealings with his human creation. He rather seeks the good of his human creation. He is benevolent, benevolent. He's motivated by what is best for humanity, which is a great definition of love. I love you when I'm motivated not for my best, but for yours. Secondly, God's love not only is benevolent, but it is also gracious. God gives good to humanity without requiring that we first deserve it. Third, to say that God is love is to say that he is also merciful, and that is to say uh, that he is tenderhearted. Uh, he's compassionate for people when they're hurting, when they're down. It's all a part of his love. 
Finally, to say that God is love is to say that He is patient. He's slow to judge. He's slow to punish those who do wrong. He continues to offer salvation and continues to offer grace over long periods of time. That's what it means to say God is love. To say God loves you, to say God loves me, to say God loves all. It is to say he is benevolent and gracious and merciful and patient. Now, for some to say that God loves loves people was preposterous, but it wasn't for the Jews. It wasn't for the Jews. They had heard what he said to Moses. They remembered what he said to Moses. But as I said, what was preposterous was that someone who was down and out, someone who was poor or oppressed, was somehow loved by God. They didn't see that any longer. The proof of God was always going to be immaterial blessing. Hmm. Micah's attacking this head on. And in these first two verses, he's saying, You've got it wrong here. God loves? Yes. But what you've got to see is that God doesn't see or rank people in order to love people. God's blessing is not something that we experience in the material. His real blessing is his heart's characteristic of love. His real blessings are grace and benevolence and patience. Those are his real blessings. Micah is wanting these wealthy people to see that God's love for them is never less than his love for others. God's love for them is never less than his love for others. Something important, something vital, we know that. But I wonder sometimes whether we understand that. Because God loves all, at the end of the day, watch this. He does love you. But that person that you hate, that person who gets on your nerves, that person who is your enemy, that that person who has done you harm, that same person is also a person that God loves. If we're not careful, if we're not careful, we make it easy and find it easy to assume God loves us, but he feels the same way about others as we do. And that somehow knowing that they've wronged us means that we can treat them as less than we are because somehow God does as well. As if we have a very special place that those, especially those who aren't like us, those who don't agree with us, those who have harmed us, don't have. This is quite an adjustment for these wealthy, powerful people. And sometimes I wonder if this shouldn't be an adjustment for us. Another way to put this is God's genuine love for us doesn't erase or diminish his love for others. And it doesn't excuse us from loving them ourselves. Which means that followers of Jesus 
receiving his love in Christ, ought to be especially benevolent to the poor, ought to be especially gracious to those whom we think least deserve it, even those that we don't, don't like, and even those who don't want our love, they still deserve it. It means that we should be especially merciful to those who receive little mercy from others, the widow, the orphan, the unborn, the oppressed. It means that we should be especially patient even with the worst of sinners. In the same way that God dealt with us and He withheld His judgment and and continued with us to offer salvation and grace to us over long periods of time and that we're followers of Christ, we finally came to receive this, this, this offer of salvation and grace. In the same way that God did that for us, we should be doing that for others. God is love means that you and I must take care how we treat others, especially the least and the lowest, especially those we don't like, those we don't naturally take to, and those who make themselves our enemy. The unexpected love of God is a love for all people, not just you, not just me, not just people like us, or the people that we like. Now, without question, you're going, I know all that. You haven't told me anything new that I didn't know. Okay? Good. Good. Part of my job is to remind you of what you already know. And then to go on and say to you, all right, so you know it. Are you living it? Knowing it is just half the deal. See, my guess is that if you're a follower of Jesus, there is somebody that you just naturally don't like. You know how I know that? Because there's somebody I just naturally don't like. They're not in this room. They're not in this church. I can't even think of them, but I'm sure there's somebody I just don't like. We all have some somebodies we just don't like, don't we? Don't we? Oh, yeah. Okay, okay. All right, all right, all right. I won't push that one any further. We just, we all have that. We all do have that. So what are you doing with that? What do you do with the poor, with the orphan, with the outcast, with the homeless? What do you do? God's love is no greater for you than it is for them. What do you do with that love? That's the unexpected side of the love of God. Let's look together at the unexpected life consequence of God's justice. Look at verses 3 to 5. Because they were mistreating other people, these wealthy individuals have something coming. And it speaks to God's justice. He says, therefore, says the Lord, behold, against this family of oppressors, I am devising disaster from which you cannot remove your necks. You won't walk haughtily anymore, for it will be a time of disaster. The time is coming when people will taunt you. And the time is coming when you will say, do you see that? At the end of verse 4, we are utterly ruined. I love this. He, the Lord, changes the portion of my people, my family, how he removes it from me, to an apostate, to, to, to strangers we don't know. He allots our fields. And these people who have stolen the fields of others, who have stolen the houses of others, who have put 
men in servitude and put them in slavery who have pushed women and children out of their homes are finding themselves losing their lands, their houses, and their freedom, being brought into slavery. And do you hear what they're saying? How can God do this to me? And his answer is, I can do this to you, and I will do this to you, because you have done this very same thing to others. I am a God of justice. I give what you deserve. What you reap, you will But you love us. Yeah. If you loved me, you wouldn't. You keep forgetting you're not the only one I love. You're devising disaster for others. I'm devising, verse 3, disaster for you. There is a punishment coming that fits your crimes. You see, one of the things that, that comes clear in, in Micah chapter 2 is this, is this fact that in this world governed by this God who loves all people, God himself sees to it that his world is governed by this law, this principle. You reap what you sow. And it is a law that is enforced not just for some, but for all. Why? Because this God is a God of love. He is also necessarily a God of justice. When these people respond as they do in verse 4, they show they don't have a full understanding of who God is. <coughs> Why would God do such a thing and take all of my lands from me and give them to those who, to whom it doesn't belong? And the answer is because God is a God who loves you undeservedly, but in His justice always gives you just what you deserve. So theft, reap theft. Live by the sword, die by the sword. Because God is just, and this is his world. We all reap exactly what we sow. Not only here, but hereafter. Notice with me what Micah says in verse 5. There's a further punishment coming for these people. In the future, Micah says, when the exile is ended and God's people return, you will have none to cast the line by lot, meaning they will have no one from their family present to receive their land back again. The families of those rich oppressors will be extinct, and there will be no share for any of them in the restored land. Once again, what, why? Well, you robbed the future of other families. Now the future of your family will be robbed from you. You reap what you sow. 
Every choice A has a consequence B. The quality of the choice A determines the quality of the, cho of the consequence B. Now, I want you to see with me what this says about God. This God of love who can also devise disaster for those who devise disaster for others. You see, this God of this unexpected love is also a God of unexpected justice giving us what we deserve, both good and bad, at the same time. The truth of the matter is that in a very significant way, the love of God requires the justice of God Though we tend to think of them as enemies, we often assume that God's love means that he will choose not to require that we suffer the consequences of our sin. But here's what we miss. Out of God's love, out of his desire that we be genuinely free to love him in return, God gives to us a real capacity for genuine choice and choices that bring real consequences. If my choices didn't bring real consequences, they wouldn't be real choices. I wouldn't have real freedom. As a result, because of God's love and His desire that we love Him freely in return, our moral choices have life and death consequences for us and have life and death consequences for others. Our moral choices can be bring life by conforming to God's design for life, our moral choices can bring death when we reject His design for life and try to live on our own. And these consequences are determined by who God is. He is a God of love who loves life, who gives life. He is a God of justice who wants to see life preserved. And when I make choices that harm you, when I make choices that bring destruction to you, God out of love for you and God out of love for me is going to hold me accountable for my choices. Does that make sense? See, we want to say to God, God, uh, don't you love me so much that my choices don't matter? Won't you give me a pass on the consequences? And God wants to say, no, of course not. I love you too much to let you make choices that rob you of life, that bring you destruction. I love you too much to let you do that kind of damage to other people. I love them too much to let you do that. The unexpected consequence of God's justice is that every life choice we make has consequences for life here and hereafter. Most of your life, where you are right now, is the direct consequence of the choices you made yesterday. You are living today in the consequences of your choices from yesterday. And if those choices were good moral choices, then you're experiencing in one way or another the benefit of those good moral choices, those life choices. But to the degree and extent that those choices were contrary to God's will for life, then what that means is you're experiencing or you will experience those negative consequences for choosing something that rather than giving life brings destruction or death.
Why? Because this God of love and justice works in a way that we always reap what we sow. Be careful what you sow. You're making your tomorrow right here, right now with the choices that you're making right here, right now. And any place in your life right here, right now where you're choosing something that you know is contrary to the moral will of God as it revealed in His Word, you're sowing trouble into your future right here, right now. You say, oh, but I'm a follower of Jesus. Wonderful. So what's your excuse? You should know better. Doesn't that mean that I get out of the consequence? No, that's the whole point. There's still consequences. I'm not saying that you lose your salvation. But if you're his child, in fact, I would say you especially are going to get your consequences because of his love for you. The unexpected justice of God is for all people, including you and including me, not just for Hitler, not just for those serial killers, but it is for you and for me for life. And in a very powerful way, God has given us enough freedom to give us the power to choose not what happens to us, but the quality of life that comes to us by the moral choices we make. You reap what you sow. Finally, I want you to see with me the, uh, no, let's go to three, the unexpected life consequence of God's faithfulness. Look at verses 6 through 11. Here these verses shift, and they show us the response of some other prophets from Jerusalem, no doubt, to Micah's message. And they say to him, don't preach. One shouldn't preach of such things. Disgrace will not overtake us. And then they turn to the congregation or the people gathered listening to Micah announce this judgment of God, and they say, should he be talking like this? Has the Lord grown impatient? Are these really his deeds? Is this the way God really acts? And so these other prophets rebuke Micah, claiming that they speak for God. They're, they're trying to shut him up. Don't speak such things, they say. The idea that their sins could bring such punishment was not only unwelcome, it was inconceivable to them. Notice their three questions. They have to do with the nature and character of God. Should this be said? Is God really impatient? And is this the way God works? Are these his doings? They've convinced themselves that there's nothing in Micah's message to fear because God would never disgrace them. God would never disgrace these powerful pe people that Micah is preaching to. Why? They're of the house of Jacob. They're God's special covenant people. He's called them his people. They're the object of his special care. He loves them. He's told them so. Do you remember? Do you remember? Do you remember? They say, look, 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 don't you remember what he said? He's a God who's merciful, and he's gracious, and he's slow to anger. 
He's abounding in steadfast love. I mean, it's love upon love upon love and faithfulness. Keeping in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Should this kind of message be preached? Should it be said? That's, that's not who God is. Now, notice, 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 notice. What did they do? I'll tell you what they did. They heard what God had to say about himself, and they said, okay, let's see, Exodus 34, 6. I like that. I like that. That's good. I'm keeping that. I'm keeping that. That's exactly what God should be like. I like that. I'm merciful, gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faith. I like that. Keeping in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. I like that. I'm keeping that too. I'm keeping that too. Now what's next? What's next? Ah, but, okay. Who will by no means clear the guilty visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. I don't like that. I'm going back. <laughs> I like this. I, I don't like that. Do you see what they did? They accepted part of the character of God without accepting all of the character of God. They accepted God as love, but they would not accept God as justice. And may I say to you that if you take a real truth about God, and you break it apart, you wind up with a half-truth, and you wind up with, God, with a God who is not God. All right, listen to me just carefully for a second. There are folks in the United States today who uh, uh, present themselves as followers of Jesus, and they have abandoned the Christian moral ethic and the teachings of Jesus and the teachings of the Bible, and if you press them as to why they've abandoned Christian moral teaching, particularly the Christian sexual ethic, if you ask them why, they will tell you this, God is love, God loves all people, God accepts all people, and so there is no sin that is so serious that God does not love them and accept them. God is love. They have done exactly and are doing exactly what these wealthy people were doing, taking part of the character of God and using it as a license to call what God calls sin and evil good. Now, we can, uh, we can go on and on about what are called progressive Christians, but I think we need to pause and say as evangelical Christians who believe in the authority of God's Word, we need to go on and own our own failure in this matter because what we do is while we will call sin, sin, and while we will identify sin, particularly in others, when it comes to our own sin, we give ourselves a pass, and what do we say? God loves me, and He will forgive me, so this sin doesn't really matter. Which is, at the end of the day, the same problem. God is love, so sin is not serious. If you're taking notes, write that down. This is the problem. God is love, so sin is not serious. And so what we do as, as evangelical Christians, what we do is we go, I'm getting ready to sin. 
I know I'm getting ready to sin, but I also know God loves me. And all I've got to do is pray and ask him to forgive me, and I'm good. Whoosh, it's gone. So we go right on in, and we think that thought, and we do that deed. And then, Lord, I'm so sorry. Whoosh, it's gone, and then off we go. There's a problem with whoosh theology. Do you know what it is? Do you know what it is? It don't work. It don't work that way. It don't work that way. The Bible says that godly sorrow leads to repentance. It leads to a change so that we just don't sin and whoosh and sin and whoosh and sin and whoosh. Wouldn't you like to come into the sermon right now? What is wrong with that guy? <laughs> sin and whoosh. It's, you know, no, 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 no. If you're not serious, you're not getting forgiveness out of that one. And by the way, listen, listen. Even if you do, you knowingly sin, you sin, but then you, you're genuinely repentant. And you ask for forgiveness. He is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That is true. But he doesn't take away the consequences. And many a follower of Jesus has lost wife and husband, family, jobs because they took a moral step that God says they shouldn't take. Are they forgiven? Yes. But they've lost their family. God never said, you wouldn't reap what you sow. He said, you always will. Does that make sense? God says to them in verses 8 and 9, my, my real word to you is not that you are loved and okay no matter what choices you make. Oh, no. My real word to you, the word that I speak. Do you see his question at the end of verse 7? Don't my words do good to him who walks uprightly? My real word to you is that you are too much loved by me to let you make destructive choices without experiencing destructive consequences. I want you to know I take your life seriously. I want you to know I take the lives of others seriously, and I love you too much to let you do whatever you choose to do. So he says, verse 10, to these people, arise and go, for this is no place to rest because of your uncleanness that destroys with a grievous destruction. Everything you did to others is going to be done now to you. In verse 11, he says to these prophets, he says, you're just the kind of prophets these people need. You tell them exactly what they want to hear. Do you know what's, uh, what's interesting? Is that the churches that tell people exactly what they want to hear tend to be empty. The churches that tell people what they don't want to hear with anger and hatred tend to be empty. <laughs> But the churches that tell people what they don't want to hear, but what they need to hear with love, tend to be full. Why is that? Because down in our hearts we know God isn't just a God of love. He is also a God of justice. And in the end we know nobody ever gets by with anything. And we need someone to tell us, his truth. Well, 
What a sermon. No, I'm not talking about my sermon. I'm talking about Micah's. What are you talking But did you notice the end? I didn't read it. Did you notice the end? God doesn't end right there. Because if he's just a God of love, and, and then he's a God of justice, and we reap what we sow, he forgives, but then he holds everybody guilty. There's a, there's a tension there. And it kind of leaves us where Moses was. How do you make that work? What does that do? How, how's that going to? How can you be both? Listen, listen to what he says. He gives us a beautiful pointer. He says, I will surely assemble all of you, O Jacob. I will one day gather the remnant of Israel, and I will, watch this, set them together like sheep in a fold, like a flock in its pasture, a place where your needs are met. A noisy multitude of men you will become. And I believe that's a picture of the nations being gathered around by God. Jacob, Israel, and then the nations. And what we see here is the unexpected consequence of God's love and His justice coming together in a faithfulness where God remains faithful to Himself, faithful to love, faithful to be just. One day, God says, he himself will gather together the people he now scatters along with a multitude of throngs of people. One day, he's going to put them all in one pen like sheep and make them his own. Not because one day his love will eclipse his justice, but because one day, do you see the next verse? He will send a king. And that king will come to them like a shepherd. He will be with them. He will be among them. He will break through all that binds them. He will go before them, leading them. Do you see it? And he will lead them to the life God always intended, a life of perfect love, a life of perfect holiness, just like his. Oh, how Micah must have wondered how in the world that was going to happen, that a shepherd king would be able to come and break through what was binding people and overcome this problem between God's love and his justice. Moses must have wondered how in the world God could be this kind of God. But you and I, we know now. Oh, do we know now. God was never one day unfaithful to his justice and he was never for one moment unfaithful to his love, but he was always and has always been faithful to both his love and his justice. And the way he did it was to send that king who was a shepherd, who had come to be where we are, so that he might gather us together like sheep in a pen and keep his promise to the nations that one day through Abraham all the nations of the earth would be blessed. He came. And on his cross, that shepherd king broke through the curse of our sin and did what no one expected God to ever do.
this God of holiness and love, this God of justice, in His Son, took on every sin. Stephen David Charles Courts ever committed. Jesus took my justice for me. And in his resurrection, he broke through the curse of death into life so that I might live. This is our God. He is loving and He is merciful and He is patient. He is gracious and He is good and He is kind. And He sees to it that no one ever gets by with anything. Every choice has a consequence, but by His grace, He took our place. Jesus there for me. And because of him, we can be free. Now, that's better than crowded peas, better than butter beans. Better than Kentucky Wonders. This is what makes life worth living. It's Jesus. Jesus. What does God's love mean for our life choices, especially for our sin? Let's go back. Well, good. Let's go. That's it. God's character. We'll go back, all right? Where does God's love mean? What does God's love mean for our life choices, especially for our sin? The answer is this, and this is the point of today's message. God's character of love makes our sin serious, not superficial. Because God loves us doesn't mean our, our sin doesn't matter. Because God loves us, it does matter. And it means that our sin is always serious and not superficial. So stand to your feet, would you, all across the room, as together we pray, Father God, I thank you and I bless you that by your great grace and your great mercy, you have chosen to take our place, to stand in our place as a way of being faithful to your character as one who loves and your character as one who brings and does what is just and right and good. Father, as we stand together in this place, would you cause us to be set free from the notion that your love means our sin somehow doesn't matter. 
And would you cause us, particularly those who are your people, who have known your love in Christ, would you cause us to see and to know the depth of your love for us in the suffering of Christ in his willingness to stand in our place, take our sin, and take our punishment. Would you cause us, Father, to see the truth, the reality, that even here, even now, for followers of yours, when we step outside of your moral boundaries, that consequences are inevitable. We don't get a free pass. And while you stand ready to forgive us, you do not release us from the consequences of our choices. Some of us today, Father, are suffering today, wondering where you are because of choices we made yesterday. Forgive us for presuming upon your love, thinking that it would mean no consequences. Father, for those of us who right now, right here, are right on the cusp of stepping outside of that moral boundary that you've given to us, those moral guidelines for life, who are right on the cusp, I pray, Father, that you would, by your Spirit, pull us back and cause us to see what choosing A actually brings in the form of B, and that it is inevitable and no one gets a pass. Father, where we've transgressed your, your moral law, where we've presumed upon your love, and where here and now we're broken and recognizing it, Father, for those of us here who are in that place, I pray, Father God, that they would, coming to you with repentance and fresh faith, that they would today experience your very real forgiveness and your promise to be with them even in the consequences they've sown and are now reaping, bringing them out of that through and to a better place. May it be so for Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Wow. Wow. What a sermon. Micah 2. What a sermon. Micah 2. So what are you sowing? What can you expect to reap in the days that are to come? If you're a follower of Jesus, I want to call you. I want to plead with you. No sin is nothing. Every sin has consequences. Jesus is the only answer. If you know him, he is your reason staying inside those bounds. If you don't know him personally, and there are those here today who don't, you haven't experienced repentance and faith, put your faith in him for life. He stands ready to give you that life that is full, good, 
He stands ready to forgive you and break through for you those things, break through those things that have held you down and brought so much destruction to your life. He's ready, he's willing, he's able. I'm going to let you go today. If you're ready to give your life to Christ, I'll be standing right over in that corner. I would love to meet you there and pray with you. Can I have that magnet, please, quickly? Today we're launching a, a new ministry uh, effort. It is called the Office of Pastoral Ministry. As our church has grown, what we find is that um, we're needing more and more help offering pastoral care in the form of counseling and uh, so on and so forth. And so we're expanding that. Um, this is very hard for me, I'll have to tell you, because I have a pastor's heart, and I have a hard time saying, I can't meet with you, I can't meet with you. But we've probably got well over 2,000 people who now call Center Grove home. They don't show up on the same Sunday, but they show up. And what that means is that that's a lot more than what I can actually handle and do. So there, these magnets actually give you a direct number to pastoral care should you need that. And one of our pastors, one of our counselors will connect with you. Uh, it also has the number for member care when there's a tragedy or sickness or an illness or a death for you to reach out and let us know because we want to care. We don't want anyone to fall through the cracks. This is available through your life groups or it's available at the information center. I want you to have that and be aware of it, all right? God bless you. Go with grace. I'll wait right in this corner. Thank you. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kors. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.